0: Hello and welcome to another session of the Business of Craft Beer blog talk radio show. Uh, My name is Greg Dunkling and I'll be today's host. Uh, As the craft craft beer industry continues to expand, uh, the likelihood of craft breweries crossing intellectual property lines amongst one another is likely to increase. Uh, Today's brewers are moving from one brewery to another at a faster pace than ever How can a brewery protect against their recipes walking out the front door to another brewery? Is this truly a problem or only overhyped by legal experts who are paid to worry about such matters? Then there's the question of trademark complaints as one brewery uses a similar or identical name, logo, or beer brand. This, as we know, is occurring more often in the beer industry today. So what are the solutions? How can a brewery protect themselves from a time-consuming and potentially expensive legal fight? With us today is Matthew McLaughlin, founder of McLaughlin PC, a private law firm serving the alcohol industry. Matthew was the recipient of the Brewers Association Defense of the Industry Award for his work in support of the craft beer, uh, beer industry two years ago. Uh, in, in today's uh, discussion, we will discuss with Matthew some best practices and pragmatic solutions for breweries to implement to protect their intellectual property.
1: So let's get started, Matt. Welcome. Yeah, great to be here. Thanks.
0: Well, <clears throat> let's um, let's begin by taking a look at um, the intellectual uh, uh, property protection issues um, as. The industry is experiencing some legal issues. Um, why is this? Is this due to a large measure of a number of new breweries or what's happening
1: out there that's surfacing this issue? Yeah, good question. Um, I think there are a, a number of factors kind of kind of driving this, Greg. Um, I mean, first of all, just the sheer number of, of suppliers or, or breweries in the United States has increased at, at almost an exponential rate over the last, five to ten years. I think towards the end of last year the BA reported that we had over 6,000 breweries in the United States and you know we're on pace to probably hit or break 7,000 by the end of the year. So when you have that many manufacturers of one particular product and the fact that they are all manufacturing multiple different varieties of a particular product just the number of names of breweries and beers, there's there's only so many kind of puns out there that, that people can use. And um, so that, that's one factor. Um, I think another factor, too, is, you know, the industry is starting to mature. and you know, a lot of these folks probably got into the brewing industry, and it was really nothing more than an artisanal hobby. You know, they had been a home brewer, um, had entered some competitions and won some awards and had decided to take the leap and sort of go pro. Um, and – and now, you know, three or four or five years or even ten years down the road, what started out as a, a small nano um, based on a homebrewing hobby has now become a living and breathing and operating business that has very real enterprise value. And um, that enterprise value a lot of times is tied to the to the brewery's intellectual property and the value of that intellectual property. The other areas where I think we're starting to see uh, – or the other reasons why this is kind of popping up is um, a lot of times you know you have reps and warranties, or a brewery will have reps and warranties in various contracts and agreements. So, by way of example, in a distribution agreement, a brewery typically gives a rep or warranty that it that it owns or um, it owns or has registered all of the trademarks, and those are generally licensed to the distributor in a non-exclusive, very limited way for use of the sale. And so in order to make that rep, um, you have to do certain things. You have to, you have to undertake certain diligence with respect to your beer names. And regardless of whether you register them or not, you're, you're making reps and warranties about the ownership of your intellectual property. Um, that's also happening in transaction and, and deal docs where an investor may be coming in or a buyer may be coming in and they're doing diligence on a particular brewery and there are similar reps and warranties about the ownership of intellectual property and what steps that have taken. So just the, the terms of contracts have created a greater awareness of these issues um, and are increasing their significance both from an operational perspective but also from a, a deal perspective.
0: Mm-hmm. Another
1: area where I think this is becoming keenly relevant, and you alluded to this in the intro is that brewers are moving you know from from Brewery A to Brewery B, and the question becomes, what, if any, sort of restrictive covenants has Brewery A put in place um, that limits that particular brewer's ability to go work with a competitor? You know, so there's a there's a labor and employment component of this as well, um, but all of these issues are are seemingly interrelated, sort of under the umbrella of of intellectual property.
0: Uh, great. Well, I suspect that when most people think of IP and breweries, they are focused on beer recipes. Um, Are there other types of intellectual property, and how can a brewery protect beer recipes?
1: Sure. Yeah. You know, beer recipes generally fall under the category of trade secrets, and um, that's an, an area of intellectual property law that sort of gets lost in the shuffle. You know, people normally think of intellectual property as being patents, copyrights, and trademarks. But trade secrets um, potentially have the greatest value of, of any area of intellectual property, um, namely because there's it, it never expires. Uh, patents have an expiration period, copyrights have an expiration period, and trademarks do to a certain extent. But generally speaking, a, a trade secret is is any sort of you know, financial data, formula, pattern, program, device, recipe, technique um, that has some degree of economic value that is not generally known, and that the brewery undertakes measures to maintain its secrecy. So a recipe would sort of fall under that or fall into that particular basket of intellectual property. Um, then you have patents. Um, I don't normally see very many of these in the in the brewing industry, but these are inventions or discoveries that have, are new, are novel, and have some sort of utility. Um, copyrights are uh, original expressions of literary, dramatic, musical, artistic, and other creative works. Um, thinking of logos and artwork and packaging design and things like that, those are things that could potentially be registered as copyrights. And then finally, trademarks, which I think is um, probably the area of brewery intellectual property law that warrants the most discussion. Um, It is certainly uh, the area that has created the most controversy and adversarial proceedings over the last few years. But trademarks are words and designs and symbols um, that are used to identify the source of goods that are made uh, by a particular brewery to distinguish it from goods made by another brewery. Um, a lot of times people think that a trademark is identifying the what, and that's not entirely true. It's the, the purpose of trademark law is to identify the who and to, and to prevent consumer confusion in the marketplace.
0: Let's go back for a second to beer recipes. Um, how much variation is permitted um, as, as you know you know you can uh, add additional hops or reduce the, the quantity of hops and you know by a slight amount and does that significantly change the recipe and then therefore doesn't fall under these trademark uh, rules?
1: Well the so Yeah, there are a lot of recipes that are fairly general in nature. There's also, you can go on the Internet and find recipes to clone, you know, popular beers. Mm -hmm. Um, Those are still, recipes are still generally trade secrets. So, you know, to the extent that a recipe varies ever so slightly doesn't negate the fact that the underlying recipe, again, to the extent that it is, it derives some sort of economic value and, and has been maintained a secret, it can still be a trade secret. So even if brewery B develops uh, a Pilsner that has a similar profile to brewery A and the recipes are almost nearly identical, if they were you know, created independent of one another, um, they would still be protectable trade secrets under most state trade secret laws.
0: Have we seen uh, examples of uh, uh, trademark uh, claimed infringement in this particular area?
1: Um, not necessarily trademark infringement. Um, the trade secrets generally come up in the context of labor and employment situations where you have uh, an individual that has been exposed to proprietary and confidential trade secret information, and they move from one employer to another um, that's really when the question becomes, you know, has this person misappropriated trade secrets? There's a whole bunch of processes that can be put in place to mitigate the risk of that, you know, just in terms of how you onboard employees, what your employee handbook looks like, whether you require certain employees to sign employment agreements, what the restrictive covenants look like within the employment agreement or within the employee handbook, and then how you how you handle employees leaving the company, you know, exit interviews, making sure that you've gathered all of the company information that they have. Um, that, that's really – the, the trade secret analysis really comes up when you have situations where a, a brewer or, you know, somebody in the executive office um, has left to go to work for a competitor.
0: Yeah, I mean, I've seen uh, just a few cases of non-competes, which are highly contentious, uh, uh, particularly in an industry that that, um, prides itself on collaboration. Uh, Are you seeing, you know, obviously you see that sometimes in other industries. Are you beginning to see that in the beer industry as well?
1: Yeah, absolutely. And, and, you know, again, as this industry is starting to mature, I think a lot of folks are starting to come to the realization that there is, a significant amount of enterprise value that they have created within their organization and if they do not take steps to protect it then that value decreases or they may lose the ability to claim rights to it later on down the road so it's, it's it is a it's kind of a weird paradoxical time because the industry is highly collaborative but at the same time you know there are certain things that breweries and their employees just shouldn't be talking about because it can have a big impact, um, one on their bottom line and two on the value of the company, which impacts their ability to borrow money. It impacts their ability to raise additional equity, and it can impact the value of the company in a in a in a sale. Mm-hmm.
0: Mm-hmm. Now let's let's dig a little deeper into trademarks. Um, the as you alluded to before, the, just the growth of the of the craft industry over the past decade um, has created challenges, particularly for new, new players. They're running out of language to use and selecting a, a brewery name or beer products. And, and um, so I talked, I talked with one brewery owner um, uh, recently who uses a database of retired racehorses to name beer products um, right. that's getting quite creative. <laughs> um, what, what exactly is a trademark and, and how is it registered?
1: Yeah, so um, trademarks are are generally words, designs, symbols, devices uh, that are used to identify the source of one good um, made from another producer or another brewery. Um, The example I like to always use is, so if you look at Stone Brewing Company with just the name Stone Brewing Company, that name is a trademark that can be registered, and that is a Um, that is a series of words that identify uh, stone to their product. Um, Another example of a trademark that is not a standard character or word mark is that iconic stone gargoyle. So when people see that gargoyle, they can make the mental connection between Stone Brewing Company and Stone Brewing Company beer. So trademarks generally are words or symbols or logos that identify um, a particular set of goods, um, for the producer of a particular set of goods, to distinguish that from from other manufacturers. I think I mentioned this earlier, um, but trademark law is really premised on identifying the who, the who who made it, as opposed to what it actually is. Um, registration, uh, there's kind of two parts to this. There's uh, state registration of trademark, so you can register your trademark you know, in the jurisdiction that you're located, assuming that you are using it uh, in some sort of commercial way. Um, And then there's the federal registration, which is governed by the Lanham Act. And in order for a trademark to be registered at the federal level with the United States Patent and Trademark Office, the mark must be distinctive and used in interstate commerce. Now, those two criteria appear to be very simple, um, but they are actually fairly complicated concepts. Um, the distinctiveness requirement um, requires you to look at how, you know, how different is the mark from, one, existing marks that may be registered and being used in the marketplace, um, and then also sort of the qualitative uh, aspect of the mark. Is it unique? Is it arbitrary? Those marks are easier to register than um, marks that are merely descriptive in nature, which are marks that the USPTO will generally not let you register. Um, Geographic indicators um, are not strong marks. Those are not distinctive, and generally the USPTO will not let you register those. So, Coming up with the name, trying trying to sort of check that distinctiveness box can be unbelievably challenging. Um, and then the second part of it is it has to be used in interstate commerce, meaning there has to be a sale or some, some commercial transaction that has crossed state lines. So if you meet both of those thresholds, then you can have a mark registered with the USPTO. There are a bunch of steps that you have to kind of go through to get to that point. Um, generally, clearance or research is the first place that a brewery will start to, to analyze that distinctiveness um, element that I mentioned earlier you know so I've seen this play out a million times you have you know people working at the brewery uh, you know maybe prior to or after a shift and um, the head brewer has come up with a new beer that may be a limited release it may be tap room only or it could be a beer that the um, brewery wants to sort of roll out into its, its flagship portfolio you know there's a bunch of people throwing names around on a whiteboard, and then ultimately they decide on one. Um, at that point in time, it's generally a good idea to clear the mark, meaning research the mark to determine if, if, if a senior user is using the mark in commerce, um, and, and that's accomplished really a couple of different ways. The brewery needs to look on the USPTO database, uh, which is fairly user-friendly, to determine if there are any registered marks Um, with that particular beer or brewery name. And this is really more of an art than a science um, and requires the analysis oftentimes of somebody that has dealt with the USPTO or they're examining attorneys on a pretty regular basis. Um, A lot of people are under the misperception that if the exact mark is not found in a USPTO search, that they're clear and they could be good to go, and that's not entirely true. The examining attorneys will look at subtle variations of the mark um, to determine whether or not there's a likelihood of confusion. So clearing the mark is a good way to mitigate the risk that you're going to draw an office action, which we're going to talk about in a little while. Um, You also have to research non-registered marks. So just because somebody hasn't registered a trademark with the USPTO at the federal level doesn't mean that they don't have some common law or state-specific rights with respect to that particular mark. By way of example, um, a brewery in Knoxville, Tennessee that is selling a beer in its tap room, it may not be selling that beer through wholesale distribution. It may have no intention on selling that beer through wholesale distribution. Once that brewery starts to make the beer and they actually sell it, they begin to accrue common law rights with respect to that mark within the state of Tennessee. Mm -hmm. Or at least within the city of Knoxville and the zone of natural expansion therefrom. So, in order to research common law uses, the brewery or their legal counsel need to get on the internet, do a series of Google searches, look on Untapped, look on Beer Advocate, look on other beer publication websites, look on the COLA database as well with the TTB to see who is who has gotten um, label approval for certain names of of beers and so on and so forth. Um, The brewery can do this research. Their legal counsel can do this research. And there's also third-party service providers that, for a fee, will do a comprehensive knockout search that looks at all of these issues. They look at the USPTO registered marks. They look at state common law use and they will essentially give you a report as to what they find out there. Um, I don't think most breweries spend enough time on clearance, and this is probably the most important part of this process um, because you have a an obligation, whether you're going to register a mark or not, to determine whether or not you are infringing on somebody else's trademark. If you decide to go through with registration, then you are Essentially, stating under penalties of perjury when you filed the application with the USPTO that you have done some degree of diligence with respect to this trademark. Um, so, coming up with beer names and brewery names is fun and it's it can be it can be great, uh, but it can be it can be nerve-wracking and it can be challenging. And it's just critically important that, that breweries commit the time to to properly clear the marks.
0: You know, you, you mentioned not spending enough time on the on the research on the front end. Um, I'm reminded of the uh, trademark fight between Old Town Brewing in Portland, Oregon, and the city of Portland. Um, for those unfamiliar with the case, Old Town Brewing applied for and received a trademark uh, for uh, a leaping stag. However, that stag was uh, actually from an iconic sign hanging in the city uh, of Portland, Um And the city of Portland did hold numerous trademarks to the stag, as I understand it, in in other categories. Um, The two existed, uh, coexisted for uh, a number of years until the city decided that it wanted to license the stag to a large international beer conglomerate, and then the legal battle was on. Um, As this case suggests, we're not just talking about other breweries that one needs to be concerned with, right? Right. Are we seeing cases where bars, restaurants, and non-alcoholic beverages even are uh, complainants involving trademarks?
1: Absolutely. You know, so going back to sort of what all trademark law is sort of predicated on, which is to mitigate or eliminate consumer confusion in the marketplace. And, you know, there are product categories. So beer is – International Class 32, um, that is the class that you would at least initially register a logo or a name if you were going to federally register a particular trademark. Well, when you make that registration or that filing, the examining attorney is going to receive it, and they're going to not only look at everything that is in International Class 32, they're also going to compare that particular mark against International Class 33, which is other beverages other than beer. Um, They are going to compare it against International Class 43, which can include bar and taproom services. And I have even had situations where uh, a trademark application has been cross-referenced against other categories of goods and services in the hospitality and restaurant Space, So it is not simply just looking at, is there another brewery or a, another brew pub that has this particular mark? Um, you have to cross-reference it against other international classes to do the most sort of comprehensive and exhaustive search. So, yeah, that's another area where I see people make a lot of mistakes. You know, they'll go on and they'll do the research themselves and they'll file an application and then they'll get an office action for one, either a mark that is similar but not exactly the same, or they will get an office action from an examining attorney, you know, claiming likelihood of confusion to a mark that's registered in another in another class of, of goods or services.
0: Hmm. Uh, let me just take a moment. Uh, we're talking with Matthew McLaughlin, founder of McLaughlin PC, a law firm serving the alcohol industry, um, and also let me just. Uh, take a moment for our sponsor, the Business of Craft Beer program at the University of Vermont. If you've ever dreamed of one day opening your own brewery or looking for a career change in the craft beer industry, the Business of Craft Beer certificate offers industry-specific knowledge to make this possible. Uh, All instructors are craft beer experts from across the U.S. and Canada, and each class has eight to ten industry leaders to guide you're learning about the business side of the craft beer industry. If you want to learn more, go to our Facebook page at UVM Bis- Business of Craft Beer or give us a call at 800-639-3210. Uh, Matthew, um, breweries sometimes uh, name and market a beer that plays on the name of a celebrity or a film or a movie. Uh North Coast Brewery, for example, uh, long brewed a Trappist ale called Brother Thelonious Belgian-Style Abbey Ale. Uh, The ale's label and packaging prominently featured the name, image, and likeness of Thelonious Monk, the famous jazz musician. And then the recent lawsuit brought by Thelonious Monk's son against North Coast Brewing. And it seems to reveal the hidden danger in this approach. Uh, What are the
1: rules here? Yeah, this, this actually, this, this kind of triggers application of, of of a couple of the things that we've, we've already discussed. You know, when you're dealing with works of art and literary and artistic things, you really need to analyze the use under copyright law to see if there is any potential copyright infringement. Um, there also can be trademark infringement, too, to the extent that, you know, some artist has created a logo based on their particular likeness, um, then there could be, again, analysis under under trademark law. In in this particular situation, though, um, this turns on uh, whether or not um, Thelonious Monk's son, you know, has the ability to control the name or the likeness of his father. So generally speaking, we are all entitled to control the the use of our own image, uh, either on the grounds of of privacy, meaning do we have an expectation of privacy in a particular situation, and we also get to control the publicity or use of our likeness by those that may be using it um, in a commercial way. So at least with respect to this particular case or this particular situation, the question, at least from a threshold perspective, is was there an expectation of privacy? Um, I don't know the answer to that. When you deal with celebrities who are often in the public a lot, um, there's almost no expectation of privacy for things that are done publicly. I think this case is going to turn on whether or not um, Thelonious Monk's son uh, has the ability to control the publicity or the commercial nature of the use of his father's name it appears, based on the facts, that there was at least some sort of consent or acquiescence of the use of the name in uh, one situation. I think probably I think it was the name of the beer. And in this situation, it is dealing with the name and the use of the name in another product category. So, um, a lot of times these cases are highly, highly fact dependent. It'll be interesting to see how this how this one turns mm-hmm. out. Yeah.
0: So what does a brewery do if they discover another party is using one of their registered trademarks?
1: Yeah, I uh, I typically uh, tell the brewery to gather as, as much information as possible. How did you learn about it? Was it one of your sales reps that was out in the market? Was it your cousin that was on vacation in another part of the country? Um, believe it or not, those are the two most uh, standard ways that breweries will learn about use of, <laughs> of competing or, or, or infringement situations. When you gather that information, you know take a picture if you can or see if you can find images on the internet, look at untapped entries, look on the brewery's social media pages, Facebook, Twitter, um, and see what the extent of the use is. Um, anytime you suspect uh, that a brewery is using a registered mark, I think it's also a very good idea to contact an attorney that works in the area of intellectual property and trademark law to get their input on whether or not the use is infringing on, you know, their registered trademark and then really what can be done about it. Because of the collaborative nature of this industry, my general advice is to have the brewery reach out, the the brewery that has the registered mark, reach out to the brewery that may be infringing on that registered mark and try to resolve it amicably. Many times um, it is that the use of the mark is done so in a very innocent way because the brewery that is using it did not perform any degree of clearance when they were researching the mark. Um, If you do not, if the brewery does not get a favorable response or if they do not get a response at all um, with an email or a call, um, my, my next, uh, step in the process is to move on to a relatively friendly cease and desist letter. Um, I don't ever like to over lawyer situations where there's a high likelihood that the use is is simply innocent in nature and so um, if the brewery doesn't have any success in reaching out or contacting the brewery owner, I like to send a, a friendly cease and desist. If that doesn't get received or if you get a, if, if you if you don't hear back from, the, the brewery, the infringing brewery within the time period specified in the letter that's when things escalate um, to a less friendly letter. Uh, the overwhelming majority of the time though these issues are, are resolved fairly amicably um, but there are situations where uh, litigation may be necessary um, very fact dependent situation uh, which is why I think it's it's critically uh, imperative that uh, the brewery get an attorney involved that, that works in the area of intellectual property and trademark law.
0: So, so on the uh, sort of reverse end of that, if you're a brewery um, that receives a cease and desist letter from another uh, a brewery, or for that matter, another party, um, it, it's your last answer seems to imply, you know, don't, you know, don't freak out. <laughs> Um, right. con- contact them in a, in a friendly manner and uh, see what the issue is and try to resolve it? Is that what you're, you find works um, the best?
1: You know, if, if uh, my advice is a little bit different in that situation. So if we're on the receiving end of a cease and desist, um, I think that the facts need to be analyzed. Um, mm-hmm. I have been on the receiving end, or I've had clients that have been on the receiving end of cease and desist letters, where the marks... Um, aren't exactly the same. There is a distinguishing factor to the marks. Um, And so I think that that in those situations, instead of the brewery that receives it just sort of, you know, acquiescing or agreeing to to the cease and desist demands, um, get a lawyer involved to look at it. Now, if it's the exact same mark and there is a very clear situation or are very clear facts that, that indicate infringement, and it's a registered mark federally, my advice is stop doing it immediately and comply with the demands and send a letter confirming such. But in situations where the marks are not exactly the same, I think it is uh, in the interest of the receiving brewery to get some some degree of analysis, especially if it's a trademark that they feel strongly about, and that is a, a trademark or a brand, beer brand, that, that they want to commit some time and resources to develop. Um, mm-hmm. So fact-dependent, uh, and I think this is another situation where it's imperative to get a professional involved that regularly handles these kinds of matters.
0: Great. Uh, well, this has been an excellent discussion about trademarks and IP and beer. Uh, this spring, Matthew will offer a five-week, on these topics uh, through the Business of Craft Beer program. Unfortunately, we're out of time, and I'd like to thank Matthew McLaughlin for joining us today.
1: Uh, Thanks again, Matthew. Sure thing. I appreciate it. Good talking to you.
0: Yeah, and until our next podcast, uh, make sure to support your local breweries. Take care.